because okay tall the last one in this song alphabet yes so it's a crossed sticks or a cross it's a mark a sign a signal a monument and uh, it's the revelation sign as well as I recall so may my cry come before you O Lord give me understanding according to your word may my supplication come before you deliver me according to your promise may my lips overflow with praise for you teach me your decrees may my tongue sing of your word for all your commands are righteous may your hand be ready to help me for I have chosen your precepts I long for your salvation O Lord and your law is my delight let me live that I may praise you and may your laws sustain me I have strayed like a lost sheep seek your servant for I have not forgotten your commands good stuff is uh, blazing not coming tonight oh that's unacceptable. That's, that's very Just poor excuse. That's Sergio's excuse. I'm in Israel. I can't make it. Oh, boy. All right. Let's see what we got here. He'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow. Good. So he'll be at the projects. All right. Let's see here. We have um, couple, just a couple prayer requests. Claudia. Poor Claudia passed out yesterday and hit her head. And, uh, yeah. So uh, I don't know what the deal is, but she emailed today. So she's obviously getting better but uh, I don't know anyway Sam Classy's mother is diagnosed as a pre-diabetic and uh, if she doesn't get that under control she's gonna have to go on to medicine here and they say within six months so he's asking prayer for his mom <clears throat> and William Thornton is confused about what salvation means and my friend Ricky emailed me and told me please pray for him so we got those three prayer requests and uh, so oh, good Lord first. Heavenly Father, we do pray for these people and for uh, safe travels for Steve as he comes back and uh, the other people that are traveling right now. And, uh, Kathleen, who has sciatica, she uh, certainly is struggling with that as well. So we lift her up. And Lord, you know all the other people out there that uh, have troubles and trials or that are struggling with doctrine or struggling, struggling with family or financial issues, whatever is going on in people's lives, Lord search them out and uh, just uh, be with them, comfort them, and help them through their times of difficulty. We thank you, Lord, for your many, many blessings, and uh, we just ask that uh, this class be handled properly and that your word will be opened and uh, uh, treated with respect. It's a wonderful word you've given us, and so uh, help us never to uh, uh, act in a trivial manner about it, but to uh, hold it in the highest highest esteem. It's your word, oh God. Thank you for your precious word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so we got uh, today must be, it's the 30th, 31st, isn't it? Is it 30th? 30th. Okay, 30th. Okay, so we got another day of March. All right, dang it. I hoping March would just be behind us. Okay, the sooner March is behind us, the sooner the tourists are going to leave and we'll have our streets back. Oh my gosh, that's oh, just, it's unbelievable. Okay, March 30th. Um, what, was it a prophecy fulfilled to the day? Okay, uh, their timing is wrong on this, but we'll read it anyway. Let's see here. Thank you. Let me tell Sergio that I got that. Um, Doesn't he hear you? Yeah, I don't know. He's, he's doing some work today. So, 
Um, let's see here, the day was March 30th, AD 33. Wrong year, but that's okay. Four days before Passover as Jesus set out for Jerusalem from Bethany on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. He sent two disciples on ahead. Go into the village over there, and he said, and you will see a donkey tied there and its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them here. If anyone asks you what you are doing, just say the Lord needs them, and he will immediately send them. This was done to fulfill the prophecy. Tell the people of Israel, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus said. They brought the animals to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. As Jesus rode the donkey toward Jerusalem, the crowds spread out their coats on the road ahead to honor him. As they reached the place where the road started down from the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Bless the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. That's Luke 19. This was the official entry of the Messiah King into Jerusalem. Just as David's son Solomon had ridden on a donkey, his presentation as King to Jerusalem's cheering crowds a little over a millennial earlier, so Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey to proclaim publicly that he was the greater son of David who would sit on David's throne. As Jesus drew nearer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to cry, Before long your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you. They will crush you to the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you have rejected the opportunity God offered you. This prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled in AD 70 when the Roman armies conquered the Jewish people, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and left not one stone standing upon another. More than 500 years earlier, God had revealed to the prophet Daniel that 483 years after the command to rebuild Jerusalem, the Messiah would come. King Atarxerxes of Persia gave the command to rebuild Jerusalem in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of his reign. The Jews did not use the solar calendar as we do today, and in biblical prophecies, the years are composed of 360 days. The exact day of the month is not given, but the command to rebuild Jerusalem was given on the 1st of Nisan, March 5, 444 BC, and it was 483 years of 360 days later to the day, March 30th, AD 33. It's actually April 11th, AD 32, I think. No, that's the day of the crucifixion, so it would be a few days earlier that Jesus formally entered the city as the Messiah. The prophecy was likely fulfilled to the day. Something else also happened on that day. It was the day when the lambs to be slain at the Passover were selected. In his triumphal entry, Jesus was presenting himself as the Passover lamb. The Jews of Jesus' day had to decide whether or not they would commit themselves to Jesus as their Messiah, King, and Passover Lamb. The issue for us today is the same. John 1.29, Jesus, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, very wonderful there. Good stuff. Um, 
like I said, there's dispute on the days, but you know, people, what they do is they'll often get that zero year wrong. You know, you, you start with this year or that, or they uh, start with the wrong beginning year, 444, 45, whatever. And I don't have it all in my head right now, but uh, uh, it, the calculation is correct. 907,200 days is the number of days that it was, and uh, comes out to 483 years, and uh, takes you right to AD 32. But, you know, that's not something I get all bent out of shape over. It is what it is, and uh, uh, Jesus is the Messiah. And um, so, you know, one of the people, one of my friends was emailing me today with questions from another one of his friends, and he's so worried about the details that he's missing the picture. overall picture. Mm -hmm is that God has a redemptive plan in his word, and that word points from the very beginning to Jesus. It points all the way through to Jesus. And uh, one of the things that the guy said is there's no extra biblical evidence to prove that Jesus ever existed, which is not true. Uh, Josephus wrote about him, and there's one other writing about Jesus. But as I told my friend, um, it doesn't really matter if uh, there is another extra biblical writing about Jesus or not. It makes no difference. The Bible is its own testament. It is sure. It is reliable. Um, and, you know, the uh, email had lots of uh, other questions in there, like, um, they, you know, Christians say it's a flat earth, which I don't know any normal thinking Christian that says it's a flat earth. That is taking verses completely out of context, completely out of context to come to that conclusion. Um, uh, the world is 6,000 years old. Well, that's what the Bible says. Is there evidence to justify that? And all we need to do, I sent him a link of the uh, um, uh, movie, the Genesis is Genesis History, which explains how all of these things can be. And after the movie, they've done lots and lots of other uh, things to witness to the creation account. Dinosaurs. They've got all kinds of videos. So if the guy is truly interested, he will start watching with the first movie, and then he'll watch his Genesis history. There are other things as well. He's got very intelligent scientists on there. That You know, one of the things about the archaeological evidence is that they have bones that they, uh, you know, place, and they say this came from the whatever, this era or this epic or whatever. This is what these people do. And, I, you know, I don't know all the words, the plasticine and the, the uh, mesothene and all these different levels, okay? I just made those words up. Maybe they're real, maybe they're not. But they have these different levels. Of, yeah. <laughs> uh, they, um, they um, uh, now I've lost my train of thought. Uh, they, they have these bones in these things, and they say, well, this supports this conclusion. But what they don't tell you, the, I'm talking about the uh, evolutionists, is that they have rooms, warehouses, warehouses full of bones that are marked aberration is the word. I don't know what the exact word they put on there, but they're, they're, they don't fit the paradigm that they are teaching. And so they just file them away and they say this is an aberration. And they've got tons of them. They've got warehouses full of things that have been discovered that do not fit their paradigm, that actually show that what people believe is incorrect. And this is the kind of thing that is Genesis history we'll talk about. They talk about with people that have studied, some of them were evolutionists that realized it's not true. So if you really want to know the truth, what you need to do is you need to first get into the Word and say, I'm going to accept that this could be the Word of God. And the way you do that is by first thinking about what God is like. And that's why I started in Genesis 1-1 with 
without even using the Bible. Other than the verse itself, all I did was talk about God outside of the Bible, how you can know what God is like. And then when you know what God is like, just from logic, just from thinking that issue through, then you have to say to yourself, if there is a God, and I accept the premise there is because I'm sitting here right now and I didn't create myself, talking about the universe in general. The universe did not create itself, okay? So if it did, it would have had to have existed before it existed. Right. So um, the, uh, uh, you now know what God is like without any scripture, any Hinduism or Buddhism or whatever. And once you have defined what that God must be like by thinking logically, then you can say, is there something in this world that tells me about him that matches what I can know apart from scripture? And so you go to all of the different scriptures, all of the different theologies, all of the different, you know, you can go to Mormonism, you can go to Buddhism, you can go to Hinduism, and which one matches what you already know about God without ever having picked up the Bible. Now you're picking up all of these different things and you decide, does this match what I can know about God? And there's one book, one book on this entire planet. Actually, there's billions of them, but there is one source for that book, and that is the Holy Bible. I can know that this is the word of God because it explains the God that I can know apart from this book just by thinking it through logically what he must be like so if you have those type of questions uh, if you have people like that in your life let me know and we'll try to work with them to come to a conclusion but as I told my friend because he had like 25 points in one email I said he's he needs to go one point at a time if he's gonna send 25 points it means that he's not interested in any one point and if he's not interested in any one point, then he's just wasting time. Because I've had a lot of people waste my time over the years, and I've realized there's no point in talking to people like that. If they just keep throwing out more stuff without evaluating the things that you have sent them, then they don't want to know the truth. They just want to show you that they know that what you know is wrong, even if it's right. And so that's what people do. So I don't know the state of this, but you have to stick to one point at a time. Work through it and say, okay, I can accept that premise. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously you don't want to walk around telling people the earth is flat because Isaiah blah, blah, blah says it. You know, the four corners of the earth proves the earth is flat. And that's one of their arguments. Just absolutely crazy to take the verses they do out of the, their intended context. And, and plus, before I get into 1 Thessalonians, which we should be in right now, I apologize, but before I do that, um, uh, one of the things that you have to know about the Bible is the Bible is written for our vantage point. For our vantage point. We are human beings, and this is a letter from God to humanity. And so when he writes that the sun rises, even though the sun does not actually rise, why does he do that? Because it's from our vantage point. We see the sun coming up over the horizon, and therefore we say the sun also rises. But the fact is that the earth is spinning, and so it's not actually ever rising. It's just out there doing its thing. But because it's written for man about the problem with man, it will be from our perspective. Hence, there are four corners of the earth, because we're looking in the four directions, north, south, east, and west. And then you've got the lesser connections. But 
uh, you know, these are things that we have to understand about the Bible before we start evaluating it or we're going to make incorrect conclusions. This is a book that explains us from an anthropomorphical perspective, from man's perspective. And if we get that right, then we will be able to understand why it says certain things in Scripture that maybe don't fit with science because that's not God's intention is for it to fit to science. It's God's intention for us to understand. But when it says that there was a flood of Noah, and Jesus says at the time of the flood of Noah, the world was like this and it's going to be like this again, then we know that there was a flood of Noah. He's not, you know, appeasing his audience. He's not tickling their ears. He is saying that is a real historical event. If there is a Cain, which Jesus mentions by name, that means that there was a Adam, because Cain came from Adam, and the listing is given. So there are certain things that we know must be true. God is not going to accommodate us in the first page of his word and say that the world was created in six days if it wasn't created in six days. Now, how that came about, God knows, and we can think it through. And there are many, many possibilities from a creation perspective to justify a six-day creation. And what we need to do is just determine that. I got I got one of those ouchy things where it breaks off at the end end of your uh, finger. Um, you know, the little piece of skin that ah, it's driving me mad. I just realized that I'm pulling on it. Anyway, um, okay, so sorry to divert on there, but it's on my heart to have people understand the importance of sticking to the Bible. Another question I got today is I often mention in the class in a wonderful lady, she emails me from time to time, she uh, asked, what are you talking about when you say descriptive and prescriptive? And so I explained to her what that means. And this is another thing that we need to know about when we're reading the Bible, is does this that I'm reading right now, does this describe something or does it prescribe something? Now, sometimes they kind of overlap, like the rapture verses coming up. Paul is describing the rapture, but he's also prescribing for us to understand what is detailed in the, the rapture. Okay, so it's not really uh, something like you must do this and don't do that. But if Paul says, in my example that I always use so people understand this, when Paul says that he was shipwrecked, is he describing something or is he prescribing something? Describing. He's describing. He's not telling you, go get shipwrecked. Okay, he's describing what happened. And uh, going on with that, uh, uh, the example I use above all others is the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a descriptive book. It describes what happened at the establishment of the church. It's not prescribing anything for us today. Okay, if it is, then our theology compared with the epistles is going to be contradictory. So we don't want to take verses out of the book of Acts and say, see, you have to do this in order to be saved, which is like what the Church of Christ does with Acts 2.38. And now you've got a problem because it doesn't match what it says in Acts 8 and it doesn't match what it says in Acts 10. So you have to be careful about what the context is. Is it prescribing something? Uh, you know, is it anthropomorphical? Um, in other words, when it says that uh, God is, you know, sitting on the clouds, obviously he's not there sitting on the clouds. God created the clouds, and he's, you know, it's using terms that we can understand, okay? Uh, so anyway, keep those things in mind. Get a book on biblical terminology and read them. I had one. I think I gave it to Jody. I gave it to somebody, 
and uh, uh, I really should order another one because it tells you what all of the different words, how they pertain to the Bible. Like, you know, what is, uh, what is anthropomorphism and what is, um, there's just hundreds of them. And when you read those and you understand what is being conveyed, the way it's being conveyed, all of a sudden it makes sense to you. But you forget because there's so many hundreds of terms that are used and sometimes you might see it only once in the Bible. But, you know, this is an analogy. This is a uh, whatever, all these, a metaphor. This is a simile, okay? And the Bible's full of metaphors, okay? So you need to know what a metaphor is. If you get a book defining those type of words and you... I, I should just go buy another one so I have it. And then one of these days, just in a study, go through five of them or something just so people can understand it because uh, it will really help you to understand uh, what the Bible is conveying and why it's saying it in the way that it's saying it. Anyway, uh, we better get into 1 Thessalonians. We are in chapter 2 and we're in verse 6, six. which is great. We're just burning up the pages here. Yeah, so, I'll um, read uh, from 1 on. Let's see. So, um, you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal was made, we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Six, we were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. Okay, this one says, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. I almost laughed when you uh, uh, said, read about being treated shamefully in Philippi because we just started, I just started typing Acts 16 um, uh, yesterday. I typed verse two today and Philippi went through it to you know, see, you know, get an idea of all how it fits together. And Philippi is where he was uh, treated shamefully. And so we're gonna be doing that in the next 30 or 40 days, however long that chapter is. But um, Anyway, um, uh, let's see here, 2 verse 6. Paul continues on with the things they did not do when they came to Thessalonica. Okay, in the previous verse it was seen that they didn't use flattering words and they didn't wear a cloak for covetousness. Now he says, nor did we seek glory from men. Okay, it's funny, I, you know, I didn't read this before I got here, but I was thinking about exactly that. I came here today um, and I, instead of going to the Thai restaurant for lunch, I went to the Chicago uh, hot dog place and I got a big bratwurst sandwich. And just this same thought was, it, it came to my mind as I was parking the car over here. Is, you know, what are we doing this for? Are we doing it to, you know, glorify ourselves in front of men? I mean, uh, it, it just fun, I, I, I'm kind of diverting in my head, but that's what I was thinking while, while I'm parking the car today. Some, anyway, what's that? Yeah, not all. Definitely not all. I got to tell you, if I was seeking glory from men, I wouldn't be at 7-Eleven every morning because that place is disgusting. And I'm not talking about 7-Eleven. I'm talking about the way people leave it. 
the mall isn't terrible. Uh, sometimes the bathroom is, but um, uh, 7-Eleven, they, they just leave it such a mess. But I gotta tell you, today, it was cool out. So I got all the work done at the mall and I rushed through it and I got home and I had a, uh, another 60 pound bag of uh, stucco mix. And so I've been slowly going out and working on the seawall because it's been since 1948 that seawall was put in and it's just worn out. The whole face of it is just eaten away by the constant waves hitting it. So I've been stuccoing it and uh, uh, 60 pounds of stucco it, you know, 60 pounds, you pick it up and you carry it, it's not bad. But when you have to carry 60 pounds of concrete, it's just as heavy, you know? And then you gotta mix it. And I, Hidako gave me these gloves and they ripped through in like two seconds. And so my hands are just, they're completely, there's nothing left. I don't have any, any fingerprints on them or anything. I could commit a murder today and nobody would know it. Um, but uh, it, it's because the tide was out real, real far. You know, in Sarasota, we get these two tides a day. And so we get giant extremes. Most places in the world get four tides a day. And so Sarasota is very unusual in that regard. We're, we're like the only place in the world that has the tides we do. Um, kind of like the Bay of Fundy that has the, you know, 10 billion massive, right. yeah, massive tides. Well, we have our unusual tides here too. But um, uh, so the tide is out for a couple hours. It won't be in for a while. It was cool and I was out there doing that. And, uh, but the whole thing is that my hands when I come home from 7-Eleven are so gross, you know, and today I didn't have to worry about washing and washing and washing because the, the concrete just cleaned them right up. They look like they're little baby hands sand now. Sandblasted. Yeah, but sandblasted. My feet are a different story, I understand that. But anyway, are we seeking glory from men? That's, you know, Paul said we did not seek glory from men. Despite their bringing the good news of Christ, and having made converts of those he now is writing to, they never claimed some type of special recognition because of it. There was no need to give them praise or applause as if they were somehow special in some way. They didn't claim that. And once again, when Paul writes these things, I've said this week after week, but keep remembering this. When Paul writes something like this, he is writing to the people that he is saying it about. And because he is doing that, because this letter is written from him to the people that he's referring to the situation, if it wasn't true, there would be a letter circulating in the world today that said, we received this letter that's in the Bible and it is not true. And there is never any such letter on any of Paul's epistles. That in itself is a testament to the reliability of the word of God. Like I said, 500 people witnessed the resurrection of Christ. And Paul write it, wrote it to the people that were receiving his words. And if that wasn't true, there would be a letter out there that was, would have said, what Paul said is not true. There were not 500 people that witnessed this. There were, the apostles did not see it. There is no such letter out there. It is its own witness to the veracity of scripture. Okay, uh, my friend that emailed me, uh, another thing that I sent him on this same theme here was concerning the Gospels is um, if you're questioning, and I'm talking about somebody that's watching right now and they're questioning, is the Bible reliable? Okay, what you want to do is just if you are not able to do the work, say, of a lawyer, but you want to know it from a lawyer's perspective, there is a lawyer out there that has actually questioned the Bible. I brought him up a couple times in sermons. His name is Simon Greenleaf, okay? Now, 
what happened is he is a professor. He's a lawyer, but he also is a professor, which most lawyers will do things other than being a lawyer if they're in a, a you know, a college town. They'll also be a professor if they can. And so they will, uh, he is there over his students and somebody said something at the, about the Bible and he dismissed it. He was like, you know, that's just a myth and it's fairy tales. And so let's get back to reality. And one of the students said to him, if that's true, if what you have said is true, then why don't you prove that it is not true. And being an honest lawyer, which is, well, anyway, being an honest lawyer, he uh, said, okay. And he did a study on the four gospels. He said, this is the, the, the center, the central message of the Bible is the four gospels. This is what the Bible hinges on is Jesus Christ. I'm going to do this study on that. And when he was done with his study, he had already converted to becoming a Christian because he said there is no other explanation. Everything came from the proper repository. Everything was handled throughout the ages in a manner that validates its legal. I'm talking about legal standing, okay? He became the father of what is known as judicial apologetics. Everybody today knows Lee Strobel, the case for Christ. He followed in the same footsteps as Simon Greenleaf. So if you want to know from a legal perspective if the Bible is true, you don't have to do the study. Go read Simon Greenleaf's study, and he will show you the conclusions he made and how he did it. You'll have to search around on the internet and probably find it. But uh, he would use internal evidences like what we're looking at right now, Paul writing to a group of people, and it can't be denied because there's no source to say that it isn't true. If it wasn't true, there would be something challenging it. Then you'd have to say which one, and you do a legal challenge. Which one bears up in court? Well, we don't even have to do that because there's no challenge to it. So remember these things when you're reading the epistles. Remember these things when you're reading the gospels. It is that important. And if people are truly interested, they will check these things out. If they're not, then they're just wasting your time. So uh, what you want to do is not waste a lot of your time, which is valuable, which you could be spending reading the Bible, okay? You can spend your time doing that, or you can be spending your time helping people to get to know the Bible intimately. But these are the things that I would recommend to you. Um, when you read this, here, uh, where was I? Um, but before you yeah, go ahead. The, um, uh, verses that you're going through right now in Acts with regards to the council, Yes. I mean, that's... That's absolutely an example right there. It's like, here's a faction that's going, no, you have to do this, this, and this. And then the council gets together and they go, no, we're going to send you a letter. And they've written a letter that was validated. And that, you're right, that letter would have been known among every single first century church in no time at all. And there is nothing to dispute it. And in fact, everything afterward follows in accord with that letter. Right. So, and today, there are still people on that other side of the fence trying to knock down that knock down that said. letter but it's so, there and it's right. a valid letter that's a very good point that's a very good point so oh by the way about simon greenleaf is that he wasn't just a dummy lawyer he wasn't a fool that said okay i'm just i accept jesus you know uh, blindly he was one of the principal founders of Harvard Law School. Oh, I was going to say Princeton. Yeah, Harvard Law School. He was no dummy. He was an intelligent man, and he was driven by the truth, proper law, proper handling of the law, and that includes the law of God in the Bible. So 
Don't dismiss him arbitrarily. Go out and read and make your own decisions. But I stand behind his viewpoint because he was willing to do the hard work and check it out. Okay, uh, they didn't seek glory from men. There was no need to give them praise or applause as if they were somehow special in some way. Today, titles such as apostle and bishop precede some people's names on their social media profiles. I'm not on Facebook anymore, so I don't have to see that nonsense, but people like this are looking for glory from men. Now, I do understand at times people have reverend in there and whatever. Uh, that's fine. You know, they're at least identifying their position. I don't think they're looking for any, uh, uh, you know, whatever. And once in a while, if somebody emails me or if I have to explain something, then I will put pastor, okay? I don't like doing that because I, I just, anyway, I just don't feel pastorly. But I went to have an eye exam yesterday. Boy, are glasses expensive. Okay, I went to get my, my annual eye exam yesterday because we're gonna lose our insurance soon and I thought I'd better do this. And so I went and got it and they asked uh, employer job title. And I thought I'd put <laughs> Jesus pastor. So anyway, and they had some funny questions, you know, like, um, uh, do you have um, uh, blind spots? Do you have those floaters in your eyes? And he said, do you see um, uh, something? And one of the questions was, do you see flashing lights? And I've made a little arrow and I wrote a margin note. It said only when I'm speeding. And so he loved that. He loved that. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. So, you know, I will put pastor if it's something necessary, but I, I, uh, I, it's not my thing to say Pastor Charlie Garrett, you know, and people like that. They like to have that kind of thing there. And to me, that goes to what Paul is saying. He didn't, he will address himself, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But I guarantee you that he didn't walk around saying, call me apostle Paul. You know, he's just like, call me Paul. You, you, you can just see the, the attitude when he writes, you know what they were doing. Okay, so they desire to be recognized, these people that have these titles, as bearing a special position, which entitles them to honors and accolades. Stating an official title to someone while he is conducting his official duties may be a mark of respect, but to simply claim a title for all the world to see is not exalting of Christ, but of self. Paul is telling those in Thessalonica that he and those with them shunned such glory, and here's his words, either from you or from others. Once again, if that wasn't true, they just write him back and say, Paul, don't come here anymore. You're just, you're blowing wind right now, and we don't need to waste our time on this. What he said had to be true if the letter was received by them, because they're the ones that he's talking to about them. So not only did they not look for such glory there, but it was their standard way of dealing with all people. Obviously, if he's sitting there when he's not teaching people, sewing tents and not asking them for money, then he is obviously not a person that is seeking glory from men, okay? He's doing what? The tent making, it probably wasn't a real special job, you know? I mean, you think of a, a seamstress today. You go into a seamstress and you drop off your clothes and then you pick them up a week later and you don't say, that was a really special person even if it is a really special person. You just don't think that way, right? It's like going into a restaurant and there's the guy cooking and you don't say, oh, I want his autograph, right? It just doesn't happen. Well, Paul is sitting there sewing tents. Nobody would walk up and say, you're the apostle Paul, can I have your autograph? You know, they'd say, well, here's a guy sewing tents. So he was a humble guy when it came to his 
approach in life, okay? So um, they didn't look for that glory. They simply came as men with a message greater than themselves, humbly, humbly telling of the glory of Christ. However, despite coming in this way, he does acknowledge that his words, we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul had a right to say to them, I have been teaching you the word of God. I'm hungry and I would hope that you would make a meal for me and for the people with me. My clothes are worn out. I would hope that you would give us enough money to go buy more clothes. Uh, you know, I, uh, I lost my scroll when crossing the uh, whatever river yesterday and I need a new scroll and you can only get it from this Jewish guy and he charges a bunch of money, but I need it. Please go buy that for me. He didn't do that, okay? We might have made demands as apostles of Christ. The Greek here literally reads to be in wait. It is a term unique to the Bible and it means to be burdensome. As apostles or sent ones, they could have expected to be paid for their services. Paul writes about this elsewhere, noting that those who minister in the gospel should be recompensed for their efforts. But these men did not ask for pay. They did not ask for lodging. They did not ask for anything else. There's no record of them burdening anybody. And in fact, like I said, I think it was last week, they took from the poorer churches so they wouldn't be a burden on the richer churches. And he purposely would have done that so that it didn't look like he was trying to milk the rich guys. Right. It's, it's as obvious as it can be that what he's doing. These poorer churches were willing to help. And he said, I will accept your help. We're on the same level here, you and I, and so I don't feel bad about doing this, okay? Um, I think I've told the story before, maybe not, when I went around the U.S., uh, you know, people asked me to stay at their houses here and there, and the person that did absolutely the most for us, and there were a lot of nice people that did a lot of nice things for us as we traveled around, okay? As I traveled around, and Hidako came with me for a couple states. She took her vacation and came out but the person that did absolutely the most for us. I had a young man uh, that was kind of having trouble in his life and I took him to about eight or 10 states with me. And uh, we were in Philadelphia, in the poorest part of Philadelphia. I mean, it was so dangerous there. I said, I'm gonna sleep in the truck tonight because I don't think there'll be a truck tomorrow morning. All the tires will be gone, the hood will be gone. It was that bad. So I slept in the truck that night with a baton in my hand okay just in case and there was yelling and screaming and all kinds of noise all night long i parked in between these two uh, rows of houses and i was in the middle where you know everybody throws the trash out of their windows and stuff it was just anyway the lady and her husband and three little hispanic children they're all hispanic when we left they had nothing and i saw her whisper to her husband and she took ten dollars and handed it to him and he walked out and I wasn't really you know sure what we was. he came back with some things for us and I know they couldn't afford doing that and uh, when we left she also had made a a pot of food that would have lasted the entire journey I mean it was just unbelievable and so you know Paul understands poor people will do things like that with a heart and they never think this person is taking advantage of me. And so he was willing to have the poor people do this, but the Thessalonians, he did not do that. And I was so grateful to that lady for tending to us the way she did. It was so nice of her. I felt guilty, but you know, um, uh, mom told me one time, I said, you know, people want to give me something. I said, I don't want to do that. 
And she said, you have to take it. If they offer to help you and you don't, then you are embarrassing them. And that was really hard for me when I started preaching. Somebody wants to give you something for, for telling about Jesus. And she said, you, you have to do that. And so I, graciously, I tried to just, you know, accept it, but it's not easy. You know, I, it, it's not, it's hard to do that. And I understand Paul's position here. He didn't want to be burdensome on anybody. Okay, they let go of the rights which they were due in order to not be a burden on their hearers. As a note of doctrine, the term apostles of Christ does not necessarily mean that they were all designated to the apostolic office as Paul was. Instead, it is being used of Silvanus and Timothy in connection with Paul. And Timothy just got introduced today. I mean, I just, just typed that. Let me, maybe it was yesterday. Anyway, uh, let me go there really quickly. It, it's just so wonderful going through Acts verse by verse and seeing, you know, it, it's just a treasure. I'm so glad we're doing this. Um, uh, it was yesterday he was introduced, and today I typed, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Okay, that's what I typed this morning, so that'll be out in about 13 days. But um, Timothy, here he is speaking of Timothy, Sylvanus and Timothy in connection with Paul. He uses the plural to speak of all of them, while he is the only official apostle by designation. Once again, an apostle uh, of Jesus Christ means that he was sent by Jesus Christ. An apostle of the church in Jerusalem means he is being sent from the church in Jerusalem. An apostle of the superior word, no point in using the term, but if we were to send somebody, like we have a couple people that are out on a missionary trip right now, okay, we could say they are apostles of the superior word. They're sent ones from the superior word. But an apostle of Jesus Christ is a person that was personally sent by Jesus, nobody else, and certain qualifications had to be met. He had to have personally seen the Lord, he had to be commissioned by him, etc. Okay, and that's defined elsewhere in scripture. But um, uh, even if the title is spoken of all of them, as some assume, it is only in the sense of being a messenger of Christ as the term means. But without the authority of the true apostolic office of which Paul alone among the three of them possessed. There is no definite article in front of the word apostles. And so the rendering of the King James Version, the apostles of Christ, is incorrect. It leads to a faulty view of the status of Silvanus and Timothy. They are not the apostles of Jesus Christ. They are apostles in the sense that they are sent, okay, to tell the message of Jesus Christ, but they are not apostles in the sense that Paul is. Okay, life application. So if your Bible, any, any of you have that in there, the apostles of Jesus Christ, you can make a margin note, circle the word the and say incorrect. Okay, life application. In the last chapter of Hebrews, the writer twice encourages his readers to acknowledge the spiritual leaders among them. He says to remember them and consider their conduct and also to obey them and be submissive to them. This is good and proper, but it must also be mixed with discernment. If a ruler or a teacher or a preacher, whatever, if he does not display the biblical character of a leader, then that person obviously doesn't deserve the respect of the office he holds. 
uh, like the person that's sitting in the White House right now. He does not deserve the respect of the office he holds because he is not upholding the office that he is in. Be discerning first and then grant to your spiritual leaders, forget that guy, respect and submission. Assuredly, they get a lot of grief in the office they hold and so deal gently with them in regards to their position. Okay, uh, I'm not speaking about Charlie at the superior word. I never have any grief at all from anybody ever. So uh, just I am certain that other pastors do, so be kind to them. All right, uh, I, everybody that emails me is always the epitome of nice. Okay, 2-7. Um, but we were gentle. She laughed. My wife laughed. Okay. Sure? Yeah. I just, I heard Hedico laughing. She's the one that hears me stewing over some of the emails I get. She, she, <laughs> I should have read this one on a week when she wasn't here. Go ahead. Verse but seven. we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. Oh, isn't that sweet? But we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Okay. Same idea, just different wording. Okay. Verse two, seven for the past two verses. Paul has explained how he and those with him did not act towards those at Thessalonica. They didn't use flattering words. They didn't seek to be glorified by their hearers and so on. Now he tells them how they did act by starting with the contrasting word, but. In this, he is ensuring that they see a difference in their approach than others who may have come to them with other religious beliefs. Instead, he says they were gentle among you. There was nothing overbearing in their nature, nothing demanding, and nothing which would indicate expecting payment or special needs, special attention to their needs. Once again, I've said it twice already, I'll keep saying it every time something like this comes out. When Paul says something like this, it has to be true because he is writing to the people that he is talking about the relationship between himself and them. Keep thinking of that. Whenever you're reading the Bible, that alone, if you want to talk to somebody about an internal witness of the reliability of Scripture, just take them there and say, look, he's writing to these people. These people are the ones that are receiving his words, and he's saying something that he is relaying about their previous relationship together. And there is no document anywhere that refutes this. None. It is its own internal witness to the reliability of Scripture. You'll see this type of thing in the Gospels. You'll see this type of thing in the Epistles. You'll see it in the book of Acts and so on. There's nothing refuting of that in history. And I guarantee you that if these things weren't true because the idea of Jesus is so hated, so hated in the world from the time that he came until today, that it would have been not only kept, it would have been kept paper-clipped to the, the epistle from Paul. In other words, the Jews would have said, this isn't true, we're writing this, and we're going to staple or paper-clip it to this, and it's going to be in our synagogue forever. For 2,000 years, it would be sitting there, and they'd pull it out and say, this is not a true document. There's nothing, nothing that says otherwise. What Paul says must be true. It's its own internal witness. Okay, um, it must be noted that, oh, here it is. He, he could not have written this if it were not true. The Thessalonians received a letter which did not match what really occurred. If they did, they would have laughed, torn up the letter, and tossed 
combusted in the fire. Instead, it has been carefully maintained for 2,000 years, testifying to the truth of the words it contains. And so Paul continues, not only were they gentle, but it was just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, or I like yours, little children. Yes. The word for nursing is trophos, a word unique in the Bible. It signifies a caregiver who sustains someone by nourishing and tending to them like a nurse. So I have a trophos in my house. Do you? And there's only Hiko and me in the house, so. <laughs> someone who nourishes and tends to another, you gotta be kidding. She's over there saying, that's not me. I'm like a baby around there. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. It can mean a mother or any other such caregiver. However, in this case, the added word mother is probably correct. One reason is that the thought of a mother caring for her children is one of an especially close bond. But another particular reason is that Paul will return to the parent symbolism in verse 11 when he says, as a father. So it makes sense that he would be talking about a trophos indicating a mother because he's later going to talk about a father. Their care of those in Thessalonica was displayed in different ways in order to obtain different outcomes. One was as a mother, one was as a father, at other times it is as brothers. In the case of their gentleness among the church, they cared for them even as closely as tenderly closely and as tenderly as a mother would care for and nurse her own children. The metaphor is heartwarming and it is touching. And again, he could not have written this in the letter back to the church if it wasn't so. It is a self-validating letter simply because of the things he claims and the recipients are known. The letter was received by them. It was maintained by them. It was copied by them and sent out again and again and again, finally becoming a part of the canon of scripture. It has to be true. It's not something that would otherwise be untrue, okay? It just is not, all right? Uh, again, he could not have written this in a letter back to the church if it wasn't so. The words themselves confirm the truth of the claim. Life application. <clears throat> How willing are you to act in a gentle and humble manner towards those who have less understanding of the Lord than you. I admit, I get very impatient very quickly, okay? I, uh, you know, if I say something and somebody doesn't get it, I'll re-explain it, but there's a point where I just, I'm like, I just gotta be done with this. I, I don't have a high tolerance level. Um, uh, Hidako knows when Tanji and Thor were growing up, I was not a good teacher. I, they would still be in first grade if it was up to me because I'd be so frustrated. They'd be just so neurotic. They wouldn't be able to take a test when they got to school. I'm not in that sense. And I'm talking about children or people that don't understand what is being said. I, I, I just don't have a lot of tolerance for that. And it's a fault of mine, and I understand that. But I could never be a teacher like from first through ninth grade. I, I couldn't do it. High school, maybe, I don't know. Uh, it all depends on today, probably not. They're probably on like a second grade level from when we were in. But um, I just, I, when I say something, I try to be clear. And if somebody doesn't get it, it frustrates me because I can't think of another way to make it simpler. And I want to make things simple for people. But anyway, um, uh, how willing are you to act in a gentle and humble manner towards those who have less understanding of the word than you? It is true that there are plenty of people who are not well versed in scripture 
and yet they act as if they are the finest of biblical scholars. Now that drives me absolutely mad when you uh, are talking about prophecy, especially, I say it all the time, everybody knows better than the teacher. Everybody knows prophecy. They may not know anything about the Bible. They may know nothing. They may not even know the names of the books in the Bible, but they know prophecy. They are specialists at it. That there's, the world is filled with them, okay? Um, they are the finest of biblical scholars, plenty of them plus. Just ignore those folks. Don't get into debates with them as you will only waste your time. But, and the same thing is true with loss of salvation, uh, you know, things like that. You get onto Facebook and you say something, if you start going back and forth, all you're doing is playing scripture tennis. You're just, the ball is getting hit back and forth and it'll never ever end. Nobody's gonna win that debate because they don't care. All they care about is beating you and they're going to double down and they're going to take verses out of scripture. You're going to have to show them it's out of script or uh, yeah, out of context. I said scripture out of context. You're going to show them it's out of context. Then they're going to get angry and they're going to throw out another verse that's out of context and there's no winning with people like that. Don't even bother. Oh, but for those who are truly seeking to know the truth, if you possess it, pass it on to them in a kind and gentle manner. Okay, it's what we should be doing. A lot of people just don't know, um, uh, but those that do or should and don't listen, you know, what does Paul say later? He talks about endless genealogies and stuff like that. What's up? We have some stuff in is, is That's not for us, is it? Oh, did you order food? No. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering why you guys came because your windows look very nice. Good job. I drove by and nobody was home, so I didn't get to see you, so I'm happy to see you now. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you're having Bible class. You can sit down and join and us. We also, we're going to go pick up our time. I know. Go pick up your food. We I was also just... have aluminum we're going to put the back in your truck. Okay, good. Thanks. Yes. Okay. okay love both of you hugely. Yes. Love you too. Bye. <coughs> okay. Um, yeah. Very nice to see them. That kind of surprised me because I did not order Thai food for us tonight because Hidiko said no Thai food. I think she's got something special planned for me when I get home. Uh, ravioli or something. Anyway, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. Um, yeah, don't get into debates. Pass it on in a kind and gentle manner if they're willing. Okay, that's it. 2 8. 8. Okay, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us. Okay. Um, so affectionate, longing for you. I'm sorry, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. It's very similar, just a little bit different worded. Okay, these words tie back to the simile of the mother. Does anybody know the difference between a metaphor and a simile? How do you tell what a simile is? It's been years, I know, you weren't in school, but you were all taught this. If it says like, or as it is a simile. Yeah, like or as. And so you know that like a mother, it's a simile. If it doesn't have that, what's that? Well, simile, it's something that uh, mother is being used, I am like a mother to you. That's not similar, it's a simile. It's, it's like a metaphor. A metaphor is, um, you know, it's the same thing. It just doesn't use like or as. So if you see like or as, change your terminology to simile. And I don't know why I remembered that because I haven't been in the school as long as you have, but for some reason that's stuck. Okay, uh, now what's gonna happen, you're gonna get home 
and somebody's going to send me an email and say, I got it backwards, which is possible. But I'm pretty certain that a simile is like an ass and the metaphor is not like an ass. Okay. Um, anyway, um, these words, if I'm wrong, hold off. I'll check myself. Okay. I'm pretty, I, I am, I'm certain. These words tie back to the simile of the mother nursing and caring for her children of the previous verse. The Greek word translated as so is even stronger in intent. It means because of this or along with this. What he says is following along in the same train of thought. In this state and as a, uh, as a nursing mother, so as like an as, okay, as a nursing mother to those at Thessalonica, Paul says he and those with him were affectionately longing for you. Okay, they had come to Thessalonica and had developed such a closeness with them that there was a yearning to share in life with them. This was so much the case that, as he says, they were, Paul's words, well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. As nursing mothers, Paul and those with him not only imparted the spiritual milk of the word of life, the gospel, but they were also willing to expend themselves completely, just as a mother would tirelessly give her all for her children. Sounds like Hedico, who doted on those children. She took such good care of them. She didn't spoil them. There was never any spoiling in our house, but she took care of them in ways that I would never have been able to. She was tireless in caring for the two of them, and I know they appreciate it to this day. So were they also willing to do. They were will <coughs> willing to expend themselves in Thessalonica, just as a mother would for her own children. They were, excuse me, they were prepared to exhaust themselves or even lay down their lives for their beloved church in Thessalonica. This was, as he continues, because you had become dear to us. Okay, you can see the bond of fellowship in there. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny if you think about it that um, in the book of Acts, Luke doesn't really say the greatest thing about the Thessalonians, right? Uh, he says, or Thessalonians, he says that uh, the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. But that had nothing to do with the relationship that was established. The relationship was one of the closest of bonds, okay? They just were not as studious as the Bereans. So there's uh, that to be considered. But um, uh, the way that he speaks to them, it, the, it's obvious that there was this bond of love and fellowship between them. Anyway, um, let's see here. The bond of affection which had grown in their hearts was so close and so personal that they were united as a family. Parents caring for children and expending their lives for them. Paul will continue to explain this in the next verses. This chair is hugely uncomfortable to my back today and I'm not sure why. Anyway, life application. When you lead someone to the Lord, do you consider it as something that is done and over with? Or do you consider it as a first step in their new lives? Now, obviously, if you lead somebody to the Lord in a restaurant, you're not going to see him again, most likely. Okay, but if it's somebody that you know, somebody that you encounter from day to day, and you happen to talk to them about Jesus, and mm -hmm. um, uh, they uh, uh, come to the Lord, what is it that I know what it is? I, let me take this out. I got something back here that I forgot that I have, and it's, that's what's driving me absolutely crazy. I don't want anybody to see what I'm doing here. Um, okay. 
Um, so I, I had something in my back pocket that needed to come out. Anyway, um, uh, in so doing, you will be ensuring that their life in Christ... Oh, I better read that again. I got totally distracted because of that. Yeah. It is good to offer your phone number or email address and express to them that you will make the necessary time available to them to instruct them in this new life which they have received. Okay, so that's an important thing to do is that you want to... Uh, uh, you know, make yourself available to somebody. And you can even do that in a restaurant. If they accept the Lord and you say, hey, you know what, if you ever have a question, this is my email address, that's actually a good way to do it. Or if you don't have an email, just say, give me a call if you need to, and we'll talk about this. But you're at least giving them the opportunity to grow immediately in their faith, okay? In so doing, you will be ensuring that their life in Christ will develop properly. Because, you know what, if you uh, don't do that, and they, you know, all you did was lead them to Jesus. That's all you did. You gave them the gospel, and if that's it, and you don't tell them, they may end up in a church that is a really bad one because it's right down the road, and they figure, well, I'm just going to go there. You know, they don't know anything. Um, when I met the Lord, really, really met him. Uh, you know, when I actually received the Lord is up, up to debate, and the Lord will let me know that someday. But when I really came to know Jesus, I didn't know anything. And the people that were happened to come by at the time were Jehovah's Witnesses in my store. And I'd never seen a person open the Bible and read it in my life in church. I'd never seen that. And so I said, well, they must know what they're talking about. And so I started going to the Kingdom Hall, and I was there for three months. And it, uh, that's all I needed. I mean, you only go once a week, but after three months, I, it was as apparent as it could be that this is a cult, and they are insane. But despite that, uh, you know, most people wouldn't have read the Bible many, many times by the time three months were over. They don't have time for that. I did. I sat there and did nothing else but read the Bible. Okay? So the Lord was very good to me in that respect. But somebody else may get led to the Lord, go to the kingdom hall, and spend the rest of their lives frustrated over their relationship with Jesus. Okay? So it's important to at least give people pointers on getting into a good church, getting into a proper church, and getting proper doctrine. Did you have, you do? If you had a cell phone, you'd know that simile you are correct. What's that? Simile, you are correct. Oh, good. He's got a cell phone, so he checked out simile, and he said, I am correct, like and as. Score one for Charlie. So you must uh, know that they indicted Trump. You what? No, they, it's hitting right now. Oh, apparently they indicted Trump where, in Manhattan? Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, gee. Insane. Whatever. Yeah, all that's going to do is it's going to make him more popular. He went up sure. 30% I know. Uh, just without this. And now with this, it's just going to go even higher because this is obviously just a railroad. But anyway, um, try to remember to do this if you are honored enough to lead someone to acceptance of the gospel message. Give them your name. Give them your information. Or give them a good church that they can go to. Listen, I know this church in town is really good. I don't live here, but go to that church and I recommend it. Great stuff. Okay, uh, two, nine. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Wow, that's a long one. Okay, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. For laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached to you the gospel of God. Okay. Paul's words, for you remember brethren, is his way of recalling what he is about to say to the minds of those in Thessalonica. 
okay? And he does this in his epistles from time to time. He'll use a phrase like that, reminding them before he says something, you know this. He'll say it in um, uh, 2 Thessalonians. Don't you remember when I, where is it? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think. He says, um, put that down. He says, uh, do you not remember? Verse 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, 5. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, blah, blah, blah. So he's reminding them. He's speaking to them about something that they already know, and he's recalling it to their minds. That's what he's doing right here. For you remember, brethren. It's his way of recalling what he is about to say to the minds of those in Thessalonica. As has been previously noted, he could not write these things if they were not true. I think that's the fourth time I've said it, but it's that important to understand that premise, and when somebody challenges the word, you say, if this wasn't true, then we would have a document telling us it wasn't. And, you know, people dispute the authenticity of Paul's writings. You can use the same logic for that. These are signed by Paul. They're signed by Paul. They were written to, Thessalon to the Thessalonian church, and they maintained that letter of Paul. There's no reason to question if Paul actually wrote this letter or not. But when you start a Bible study, if you get a, a good commentary, or if you get, say, four or five commentaries, and you're going to start making notes to share you know, in your own Bible study, you're going to see somebody inevitably is going to say, well, this you know, particular epistle was questioned by blah, 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 and he says it's not original because... Okay, and they do this with every single book of the Bible. Somebody is there to tear it apart and say, this doesn't belong here. This wasn't written by this person. This was written 800 years later, whatever. Absolutely not. Those people are just there to destroy people's faith. That's all they're there to do. They are not writing from a reasonable perspective because the internal clues and cues concerning each epistle is already there. If it wasn't true, none of these things would be included. So keep that in mind as you're continuing to read Thessalonians or any of Paul's writings. They are authentic, they are verifiable, and if they weren't true, we would have all kinds of information showing us that go back to the same time as the original letters. There's none. Okay, so um, uh, when asking another to recall something that didn't occur, a person only makes himself look foolish. But Paul's words are true, and they are tied to what he just said about not only imparting the gospel, but also our own lives. That's Paul's words, also our own lives. He is expanding on that now by showing the extent of the labors that he and those with him went through. They exhausted themselves in, at Paul's words again, labor and toil. This is how they imparted their lives. The labor is a description of the kind of work they were engaged in, the toil explains the intensity of it, okay? Labor and toil. We came to you in labor and toil. We came to you teaching the word of God. You, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Erasmus, he worked the night shift. And so he'd show up at three o'clock in the morning and knock on our tent and say, I got a question. I've been thinking about it all day. And so they were willing to get up and say, okay, sit down, we'll talk about it. Labor and toil. They worked diligently and they worked, you know, to expend themselves for these people. Paul is telling them this and he's reminding them of that. Okay? They worked 
physically and they did so heartily. They earned their own wages and they did not rely, rely on the assistance of the newly established church. Okay, he made a point of not doing it and he's able to now write them back and say, you remember these things. This is your clue that we were true and thus the words that I'm going to tell you in this epistle will be true. I have set the, the, uh, the standard by our conduct, or we have, we've set the standard by our conduct when we were with you. And so when I tell you these things about the dead in Christ, about this and about this, that I'm going to start talking about, you will know that what I'm telling you is the truth. That is the gospel truth, okay? So um, they earned their own wages. He then notes that they were laboring day and night. Surely this included work such as Paul's profession in tent making, and it also included teaching the gospel. We know that because what happened in, uh, it wasn't in this area, it was in um, wherever, but Paul is speaking and it was late in the night. And what happened? Eutychus fell out of the window, okay? So yeah, he, he went down and he was dead, but Paul came down and took care of him and they picked him up alive, okay? But we know that it was all night long. And the terminology in that account is very clear. The guy describes the type of lamps, Luke does. He describes the type of lamps that are in the house. They're lampos, okay? They're fire-burning lamps, okay? That's what's going on inside of this room. The kid is sitting where? He's sitting on the ledge where the, the air in the room is going out. And so the lamps, the, the fumes of it would have made him drowsy. It says he became drowsy, and out he went plunk on the ground and he's dead okay so um, it, we know that it's a true account of what Paul is saying now that he worked day and night they were laboring at night bringing the word to people teaching people and so on surely this included the work such as Paul's profession and tent making but it also included teaching the gospel they did these things all day and into the night for a specific reason, which was, as he says, that we might not be a burden to any of you. They didn't want to be a burden on them, and so this is the way that he did what he did. Okay. Now, obviously, I get up early, and so I go to bed early. So I'm not laboring day and night. I'm laboring night and day. Okay. But if somebody wants to come and see me, they can come and see me you know, up until about 6 o'clock, 6.30 at the latest. And after that, I'm going to be no good at all. I'm going to be having dinner with Hedico and going to bed. And that's just the way it is. Um, you know, and I, I do understand people kind of find it incredible when they come here to visit. And I say, well, I go to bed, you know, really early. And I'm not going to, be, uh, to dinner that late. But if I uh, went to somebody, I would not say to them, you know, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Let's get up and talk. Because that's not their regular schedule. So... I accommodate people in their schedule, and I am going to make them accommodate in my schedule because I don't stay up late. I, I do know that if I call you at 5 o'clock in the morning when I get up. I, I've already been up a couple hours. That's right. I'm already well done with the commentary and everything. So, yeah, lunchtime is coming. Yeah, lunchtime is just, you know, I said to Sergio today, he's in Israel, and I got up at uh, 3.30, and I didn't email him till I think it was 6, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, it was 6 o'clock. I thought, I'm not going to wake him up. I So I sent him an email, and I said, um, it's 1 o'clock in Jerusalem. You should be getting up soon. Good afternoon, because they're night owls. And he knows I am not a night owl, and they never pester me. As a matter of fact, if they come over, say, for dinner or something, 
they're always really respectful with my time. And I'd be like, no, stick around. I'll stay up later. And they're like, no, we know you, you won't be any good in the morning if we do. So anyway, uh, just uh, they're, they're such wonderful people. I hope they come back earlier, but I don't think they will. They're going to spend the whole full three months. Anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, we might not be a burden on any of you. Their intent was to let them know the, of the sincerity of the message they brought if they had come into town, shared a message of redemption, and then relied on those who followed them to support them, it might call into question the truth of the message, or at least the truth of the sincerity concerning the message. But by laboring in order to meet their own needs, Paul demonstrates that they were wholly sincere about the words of the message and their devotion to those words. All you have to do is look at the actions of the person and unfortunately, you know, you see these people that are in these giant mega churches and they've got Just security guards. Yeah, they're, they're whisked out of the church so fast you can never see their actions, okay? Unless it's like Joel, uh, what's, what's the guy? Osteen. Osteen. His wife beats somebody up on an airplane and it makes the national news for 20 minutes, whatever. Whatever it was, she was rude to us, you know. So that's the only gauge you have of these people because the rest of the time they are secreted away. Okay, but you know, you can usually tell if you go into a church and you get to know the pastor for you know a couple weeks or something, you can kind of figure the guy out. Well, Paul is sharing with them, you know, how we were, you know, why we were that way, and so we have set the baseline for you to appreciate what we are going to tell you in the rest of this epistle, anyway. Um, in saying that we preached to you the gospel of God without being a burden. He is calling all of this to their minds. In doing this now in the letter, he is asking once again, he is once again establishing in their hearts and minds the sincerity of their actions then and asking them to believe in the sincerity of the words of the epistle now, okay? The gospel of God. You know, um, uh, hyper-dispensationalists will take Paul's words where he says, my gospel, and they'll say, see, that's a different gospel than the gospel of Peter. Okay, Paul uses so many different terms with the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God, etc. Okay, my gospel. He's, it's all the same gospel. He's using different terminology as it comes from his mind onto the pen. Okay, how you can take the couple words where he says, according to my gospel, and come up with an entirely different theological system is incredible. But that's what people do. They get myopic in their, their focus on certain things and they're unwilling to take the greater context. And that's a real problem and it leads to very serious heresy. So you just have to be careful. You gotta be careful with people and what they tell you. Anyway, um, uh, hearts and minds, sincerity of their actions then and asking them to believe in the sincerity of the words of the epistle now. Okay, why would they be so sincere in person and then make up a false message while absent. They wouldn't do it. And they also know that he's going to come to them again eventually. Okay, he tells them, I've already traveled here, and this is the second time I've been to this area. And so he wouldn't be making this stuff up. There would be no profit in it. And so his recalling their former conduct is solidifying their truthfulness now as well. Life application. Once you present yourself in an insincere manner to someone, it will be long remembered. That's all there is to it. There will always be a question in the back of that person's mind about whether you can be trusted now or not. That's just the way it is. Uh, by demonstrating an honest, 
hardworking and sincere attitude at all times, you are able to establish yourself in a positive way in all of your future dealings with others. By recalling your actions of the past for them to remember, you give them a baseline by which they can continue to go forward while trusting you. Okay, this is what Paul is doing. He was sincere. He's asking them to trust his words now because they had questions for him. They, he's giving them doctrine and he wants them to understand that what he is saying is reliable. Before we go on talking about um, people remembering your accents, I gotta get rid of that thing. I, it's gonna drive me crazy. Um, uh, it's, this is the funniest thing. I got an email from my friend Mike, uh, the guy that comes down from, uh, uh, sh not Charlotte, uh, Savannah. Hmm. He comes every year once or twice. Anyway, he, uh, he sent me a screenshot of the sermon from this two weeks ago. Okay. It's got me and it's got two people over here and he said, who is this? And it had somebody doing this behind somebody else's head. Now who would do that? <laughs> it was Thor and Faith, right in the middle of the sermon. It wasn't, there was nothing else going on. There's no reason to do it. And Mike said, who is, and obviously Mike knew who it was, but. Here Thor is making little bunny ears behind his wall. <laughs> to throw you off? I, I don't, I'm reading, it's minute 29 of the sermon. I'm in the middle of speaking. I don't look at people. I, I gotta tell you, my eyes are always going around, but I'm not looking at anybody because I'll, I'll, I'll freeze up like a, a deer in the headlights if I do. But, so he's not doing it for my benefit. He's just, he's just picking on his wife in the That was fun. That's, a, some, uh, that's one of the things, by so, recalling your actions of the past, I will recall, and I, I took that and I sent it to both Thor and Faith, and I said, good job there, you know. <laughs> so, oh, it was Rhoda. I sent it to Sergio and Rhoda too, and Rhoda said, he does that all the time. So apparently he just sits and makes little bunny ears over his wife all the time. I Keep an eye on that kid, would you? <laughs> that, oh, it was so funny. Anyway, it was classic. I get this, and he said, what does this mean? And I look, and I, it took a second, and there it is. Oh, little happy bunny ears. Okay. My boy. Yeah, that's my boy. That, that's my boy. Ten? Yeah, ten it is. We got ten. time. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Okay, I didn't get it. I thought I'd have time to get that. 210, just as, oh, uh, let me read it also. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. It was very close. Okay, um, have you seen who it was that indicted him? Not yet. Yeah, it's in New York City. It was New York. Yeah. Okay, yeah. boy, these people, they're just unbelievable. Okay, 210, just as in verse 2-1, where he said, for you yourselves know, Paul again reminds those in Thessalonica that they were witnesses of the conduct he, Silvanus, and Timothy displayed among them. But further, he says, and God also. It is a reminder that they conducted themselves in the manner they did for the sake of the Thessalonians, but they did it with a conscience towards God knowing that he is always aware of all actions and even the motives behind those actions. This then is a reaffirmation of the statement in verse 5 where Paul said, God is witness. Paul was aware of it. You know, if you keep that thought in your mind, I, you know, it's one of those things, if you just say when you're driving, when you're walking down the road, when you're talking with people, when you're, you know, whatever, 
God knows. Mm-hmm. Okay, I had somebody. Uh, she's a Christian lady that lives down the road from us. Her and her uh, husband stop by every year to buy mangoes. And she walked up to me while I was working at the mall, and she handed me a purse, and it was a Louis Vuitton purse. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, so and what? Louis Vuitton, uh, one of those expensive ones people pay all this money for, and it, ha- it was packed full of credit cards and money. And she said, "Here." This was on the side of the road. Would you take that and uh, see if you can figure out who it belongs to? And I said, yes, I'll take it right now into 7-Eleven. And they had the manager and the lady both witnessing it. And I said, she's probably going to come by here. If she doesn't, please give this to the police because the police come by every hour. They -hmm. stuff up on donuts all morning long. So there's always three or four police there within an hour every single day. I said, please make sure that this gets over there, okay? She understood that she is accountable to God. And so she didn't just put it in her pocket. It was just one of those little small things, you know, where you put all your credit cards and your money and somebody's probably jogging or something and it fell out and that was it. And uh, so she understood God is witness. And so you want to be, you want to remind yourself of that all the time. You want to just keep saying, you know, what I'm doing, God is seeing this. You're not getting away with anything in this life. I know people think that they get away with things, but they're not. Okay, he knows every single thing that we are doing all the time. Nothing is unknown to God. And so uh, we just need to have that in our minds. And Paul is reminding them, he's reminding them, I understand this and God is witness. And therefore, you know that I'm telling you the truth. Okay, with the eyes of all of the new believers on them and with God's ever watchful gaze as well, Paul reminds them of how devoutly, his words, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves. The word devoutly gives the sense of that which is sanctioned by the Lord and thus worthy of reverence. The word justly gives the sense of being judicially approved. And finally, the word blamelessly gives the sense of being morally pure and thus above reproach. Okay, think of the lady that handed me the little purse, uh, devoutly. Um, uh, it's sense of that which was sanctioned by the Lord and thus worthy of reverence. She was honest in her dealings with somebody else's purse. The word justly gives a sense of being judicially approved. She did what was just and right. Okay, and finally the word blamelessly gives a sense of being morally pure and above reproach. She didn't want the money. She wanted to make sure that whoever got it, uh, it belonged to, would get it back. So. You can think of that in your own actions all the time. Am I doing it? Am I being, uh, uh, what were the three words? Devoutly, justly, and blamelessly. You can apply that to your own life and your own actions. Am I doing that right now? Okay, and I will bet, not picking on you because I'm not talking to anybody in particular, but I will bet that you, if you keep those three in mind over the next 24 hours, you will find that you fail several times during the day, at least, because our minds get distracted the things that we you know there's uh you know i don't know something going on in my life and you think i did not do what i should have done there okay if you keep in mind your state before god all the time you will be aware of when you do wrong and if not then you just kind of blow it off and you don't consider it but if you really consider it from god's perspective you'll probably find that you have failed that test throughout the day okay Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that looks that way, but uh, you test yourself. All right. Paul asked the Thessalonians to remember the conduct that he and those with him displayed and which they personally saw.
for a particular reason. As they so acted, it was setting the example for those who believed to act as well. This will be explained in the verses to come. The thought actually begins, however, with the words, among you who believe. This does not mean that they didn't act this way among unbelievers, but that those who came to believe were aware of their conduct. It was something they saw and felt was worthy of their attention and further investigation. Nobody would voluntarily follow someone they had no respect for in regards to their conduct. As the Thessalonians followed them, they received the message and believed. It shows that the conduct of Paul and those with him had an effect a positive effect on them okay they acted properly they acted in a manner of integrity they didn't ask for anything they didn't milk anybody out of anything they just simply passed on the message of Jesus and said this is the message of God we're absolutely certain of it we're convinced of it we know the evidence is for it and you know sometimes they had the ability to perform miracles sometimes they didn't sometimes he could heal people sometimes he couldn't but they could tell, even apart from those things, that for sure Paul was acting in honesty. Now, it is true that people can act honestly and in integrity and be completely wrong. So you have to be discerning in that regard as well. You get the knock on the door and the Jehovah's Witnesses are there and they're doing these things. They're acting justly. They're sincere. They're not asking for anything from you and they are completely misdirected. So you just have to be discerning. Don't just oh, that guy's setting a good example, and so I'm going to follow it. You have to be discerning at the same time. Life application, and we're just on time. One of the most common criticisms of Christians is that they are... Judgmental. Of judgmental what's? Uh, 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 Hypocrites. Thank you. People note that they, be they believe one thing, and yet they act in another way. It is true that this occurs... But if hypocrisy is a sin, and Christians first and foremost acknowledge that they are sinners, then there is often a misconception or a misunderstanding about the Christian by those who make such accusations. He has already acknowledged his imperfections, among which may be a seemingly hypocritic, hypocritical attitude at times. Despite this, it is important for believers to do their very best to act in accord with their words. This is the example that Paul sets in his epistles, and it was because of the premier example of Christ Jesus. Let us do our very, very, very best to live our lives in accord with his perfect conduct. Good stuff there. And yes, we all have acted hypocritically, and for people to say, well, those Christians are all hypocrites, they're just ignoring the fact that they are too. So, there you go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the f chance to come into your presence and to share in your word. Lord, you're so good to us. How wonderful it is to know you and to know that you have sent Jesus to redeem us from ourselves. Wow, what a wonderful story of redemption. And it fits with what we can know about you apart from scripture. We can know what you are like simply by thinking it through and then wondering, how do I resolve this dilemma? And no other religion on this planet can resolve it. And even some cults within the faith can't resolve it because they're relying in themselves. Lord, you sent Jesus so that we wouldn't have to do that. You sent Jesus so that we could rely in you. Thank you for that wonderful hope that we possess, that sure and grounded hope that we possess. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen.
All right, we'll say goodbye now, and then I'll back this up and say goodbye in silence. This is great. Yes.